Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. We've been in a sermon series called Journey to the Cross, which is kind of fun and a little punny because it uh, literally geographically follows Jesus to the cross, but also kind of names the fact that everyone who follows Jesus in some profound sense lives in and through his cross. And so um, last week, my dad did three interactions of Jesus in the book of Matthew, the let the little kiddos come to me, the young professional, and the uh, healing of the blind man. And you might think, well, Peter, if you wanted to continue the series, wouldn't you have continued in Matthew? Now, this is not the time, place, or, t- uh, or sermon to go through how the gospels align or don't align or do their own thing or whatever, but I have made this slide just to prove to you that we are continuing the story. So Mark adds these two little, these little um, bullet points four and five, where Jesus foretells his death a third time, and then James and John come to Jesus, they ask a question. Now in Mark's version, it's his mom, it's James and John's mom, which is hilarious, but we're, we're just gonna go with this version. Um, so let's just get off to the races. If you would turn with me to Mark 10, 32 for 45, You may want to hold this open for a bit. Um, This is from the English Standard Version. I make this joke not for any particular reason, just because it's the best, like every time I preach. But this is why I like the English Standard Version, just as a sidebar. It's the most literal of of contemporary translations. It's oftentimes the least poetic and moving. But as someone who's like an ancient language nerd, you know... It's nice to feel like there's a connection to the original. So, in the very dry English Standard Version, which I will try to spice up with my voice, it reads like this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to say to them what was going to happen to him. So he said, look... We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, there's probably a break somewhere in your Bible. And in all historical honesty, there was probably a little break between the end of that paragraph and the next thing the sons of Zebedee say, because it would be weird to respond to, like, I'm going to die, and they're like... By the by, we have a request. But Mark is trying to write them together because they, kind of, they do the same thing. So, and then some days later, though narratively, right away, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher or rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, very confidently, we are able. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. And then when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it, not, it shall not be so among you. But whoever among you would be great must be the servant, uh, must be servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave or servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, when I read that and started thinking about the sermon, I had 30-some questions. I've boiled them down to a neat 12. Here they are. Why is Jesus walking ahead of them? What is that about? And why would Mark note that? And then why is the crowd amazed, but then those who followed are scared, who do not seem to be the 12, which is different? And then why does Jesus go, and they will mock me and spit on me and flog me? And then who are the sons of Zebedee, James and John? And what does in your glory mean, both to the sons of Zebedee and to Jesus? And what does the baptism in the cup thing mean? And then this is something that we will talk about, but you can't get in the English. The, the sons of Zebedee use a different word for left hand than Jesus does. I've done a fiscally irresponsible amount of Greek in my life, and I just learned this week there are two words for left hand in Greek, so that's fun. Uh, why are the ten indignant? Why are the people considered leaders of the Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles? And then who is the you among whom it shall not be so? And who is the son of man? And also, like, is he serious? We'll answer those more or less in order, most of them. I'm sure you have more questions as well. The point being, this, I think, is a deceptively simple text. Like, the more you look at it, the more you're like, why is that there? And why is that there? And why is that thing there? And what does that mean? And so, I think there's an invitation from Mark just to walk through those questions a bit and see what Jesus is teaching. It seems wise to start with what is obvious, and here's what I do now. Whatever else the answers to those questions are. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, you're not in the 8 o'clock service, so I don't make jokes about you not being awake, but you have to be pretty hard asleep not to catch that. In fact, I like, you know, I'm trying to be a better preacher as time goes on. I like to use cute examples and touching connections with what Jesus says to make it come alive. But isn't there just something kind of brutally simple about this that requires almost no interpretation? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve all the way to the point where he will give his life as a ransom for many, which includes us. It's amazing how much interpretation that does not need. He came not to be served, but to serve. And I think it's the, like, it's the unflinchingness of that that makes it so remarkable. We're in Lent right now, which is why we're doing this series. And um, uh, I won't make anyone do a show of hands how many people have done a let commitment and then can pull it back down if you've cheated on it, which I have many times. And that's, that's you know, the sort of like, ah, what's one piece of cake in Lent between friends is precisely not the attitude that Jesus takes to his mission. I'm, I've, I've gotten to a point in life, I'm really not that old, the beard ages me a lot. 
Um, I'm really not that old, but I've come to realize that there are a lot of areas in my life where people in some sense show up and they tell me they are trustworthy and they offer to serve me, which sounds great because like you, I am needy. And I have learned bizarrely that in a world that breaks trust, the offer to serve when offered to me can actually become uh, a situation in which like, I get harmed or manipulated. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody where they have um, served you or given things to you or been generous to you and you turn around six months later and in fact, you just now owe them a ton of stuff and are like bizarrely dependent on them and they are in this perfect position to now kind of bite you back. It's when your business partner of like 30 years steals the money that it really hurts. Jesus is a person who's coming to you and promising to be the kind of person you can trust to serve you. In a world that habitually breaks faith, Jesus is deeply serious about his mission of serving. And if we have that in view, I think the rest of these questions kind of make sense. So let's start taking them in reverse order. Why not? Who is the son of man? What's that about? Now, I'm sure you've all read Daniel 7 earlier this week, but just to refresh your memory, in Daniel 7, there's a scene where the prophet Daniel sees the ancient of days, who is God, and one like a son of man, which in colloquial English would be like a guy who looks like a guy. He sees God and a guy who looks like a guy, and God gives to that guy power and authority. And that's the word that Jesus is most likely to use for himself in the Gospels. It happens 80-some times. To pare that down, the Son of Man means that Jesus is the one human being who has the power of God. And he's who comes to serve. There was this weekend once where Dick Foth, who some of you know because he's preached here, brought some very powerful people to Charlottesville. And it was uh, John Ashcroft, <clears throat> the former attorney general of the U.S., and Vern Clark, who made the Otterbox, and Kurt, uh, uh, Kurt Richardson made the Otterbox. <clears throat> Gosh, anybody else, the allergies? And Vern Clark, who was the rear admiral of the Atlantic Fleet in like the early 2000s or something, and, um, you know, I got to go to breakfast because I'm a spoiled, rotten pastor's kid. But it was before, like, nine, so I wasn't awake. And we're sitting in the Hyatt, and I'm eating uh, oatmeal and barely listening to the conversation. And um, I finish the oatmeal catatonic. And out of the corner of my eye, someone takes away my plate, which I thought was nice. And when I looked up, it was like the 80-year-old Vern Clark clearing the table the former rear admiral of the Atlantic fleet, this man could have literally blown Britain to Mars at a certain point in his life. But instead, he was cleaning the plates. And I had this feeling, even half awake, that when power decides to serve, to serve you, it instills you with the kind of dignity where you can also serve without shame. There's a way of being forced to serve because, like, I'm just a worm and I don't matter. So, like, of course, I'll give you But something else happens when someone who is powerful and knows they're powerful decides to choose against the possibility of abusing the power they have and they just take the plates. And I think what it does to the people who are served is it puts them in a position where they can also serve but in dignity. Because, like, I'm worth the rear admiral of the Atlantic fleet clearing my oatmeal. 
Like I can serve with the knowledge that I have been served first. So that's why when Jesus says, it's not gonna be that way among you, right? When he says, but among you, where is it? There it is. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all because even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus serves us to turn us into the kind of people who can also serve because he served. Like the logic of it is creepily tight. Do you know what I mean? When he talks about the us, Jesus is talking about us. Like, of course, Jesus isn't talking just about how these 12 guys are going to spend the rest of their life being nice to each other. He's talking about a world-changing movement that breaks out from him and the 12 people he's talking to to stand up to a world that does not work this way. So who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are what we would maybe call the world. Now, literally, the word Gentiles in Hebrew is goyim. In Greek, it's ethne, from which we get ethnic. And it means like the nations. It's like the people groups. And Jesus is using this term here, as Paul will also use it, not so much to talk about ethnic Gentiles, which is almost all of us, but to talk about these two groups. There, is, there are the people of God, and there are the nations. And in the nations, people think they're great because they get to be served. And the perks of being great are being served. So I work at this little investment firm now. I'm a finance bro. I wear all birds. I'm just kidding. I don't do any of the investing. They know not to let the guy who went to seminary touch money. Um, so I, I work at this investment firm, and you know who has the big offices and who gets lunch delivered every day and who gets their own offsite at fancy golf clubs? The partners. You know what I mean? So there's like this hierarchy where it's like the analysts. I should probably know this, but I think it's the analysts and then the associates and then the directors and then the principals and then the partners. And clearly, you want to be a partner because they get all the perks. The partners don't like clean the plates or like vacuum. They don't do, they don't do, they are freed for higher purpose work. Thank you very much. And that's true like everywhere. Like if you're in academia, who matters? The tenured professors with the endowed chairs. And if you work at a church, who matters? Pete Hartwig? I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, hopefully not, you know. Um, or, you know, if you work at a church, maybe it's the archbishop. I don't know. But we live in a world in which everything that's structured gets structured basically on its way up. It tells you you should be higher because when you get there, you don't have to, like, piddle around with all that low purpose junk, all this detritus. But in, in the kingdom, it, just, it works the complete other way. Again, just like the brutal simplicity of this. Out there in the world, you've got to have your back because no one else will. Because everyone's trying to get to the top. But in the kingdom, the first thought when you wake up in the morning is, well, who am I going to serve? That's how it's supposed to be with us. With like the one, two, three, four, five. I don't know how many of us there are. But the, like, like us and the three other services, like this is what. Don't you want to live here instead in a community where you don't have to watch your own back because other people are wondering how they can serve you. And they're wondering how they can serve you because they've been served by Jesus, which is why you can also wonder how you can serve them. 
I mean, it just breaks open the radical possibilities of what human life can be like on this side of death and on the other side of death when we don't have to be like the Gentiles whose rulers lord it over them. The word Jesus uses is pretty strong-handed. And he's talking, of course, in the background about Caesar, who um, hired a private army to liberate Rome from Mark Antony. Recall, I know you all know this from high school history, but Jesus is saying these, world, these words about how the lords, the Gentiles, they rule over them, blah, 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 under the empire of a Gentile lord who rules it over them. And you're out of your mind if you don't think this is how the world still works. We still live in a world where at, um, at the highest levels, however you count that, there are people, there are powers that have the opportunity to lord it over us, and they do. But we are called, and we get to live in a different kind of kingdom run by a king who we can trust to serve us. Now, this is why um, the ten disciples get all miffed at the sons of Zebedee, James and John, which you may recall from Luke 9. James and John are the two brothers who are like walking along Jesus and somebody says something mean to him and they're like, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them alive? Like these people are intense and have a somewhat bloated sense of self. And they say to Jesus, in Matthew's version, their mom says to Jesus, which is something Fran totally would have done. They go, um, could we sit at your right hand, which in Greek is hodexios, the right, like ambidextrous. Can we sit at your right hand and at your left? And the word they use for left is aristeros. The word aristos in Greek means best, and aristeros means second to best. And so they say, could we sit at your best hand and your second to best hand? Like they're obsessed with rank and position. They are secretly trying to sneak the world back into the kingdom. They're like, well, when you come in your glory, like when you go to Jerusalem and you sit on a throne and you kick some butt, you take some names and you knock out the Romans and you restore us to political sovereignty, can we sit in the best position and the second best position? <laughs> and, and Jesus responds with a different word in Greek. He calls his left hand, a, it's so hard to say, eomunon, which literally means, eu means uh, good, and uh, numon comes from the word for name. It literally means well-named. The background to this word has something probably to do with ancient Greek magical religion where the left hand is kind of magic. Ooh, ah, ooh. And so they go, could we sit at your best hand and at your second best hand, we'll bargain for second and third in line. And Jesus responds with, it's not for me to pick who sits at my best hand and my blessed hand or my well-named hand. The way he names his left hand even demonstrates that in the kingdom of God, it's not about rank and position and power, and it exposes James and John who are trying to bring that into the kingdom. They think when he comes in his glory, he will lead a military revolt into Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans. He will be enthroned, and they'll sit at the best spot and the second-to-best spot. But what any academic biblical scholar will tell you is that all four Gospels do something that is frankly unsettling, 
which is they take all the metaphors that you would use for someone being enthroned as a king and they put them on Jesus' cross. That's where he's crowned. And the sign above him reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and just in case you missed it, in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. They think his glory is his throne, but Jesus' glory is his cross. And just to put a fine point on it, the words that Mark uses for the thieves on the cross are they were at his right, in his almunan hand, at his right hand, and at his well-named hand. The kingdom of God is so counterintuitive to the power struggles and hierarchy of the world that to hang crucified at the left side of Jesus is its own kind of blessing. At that point, all bets are pretty much off. And we're called to be the community that sees things that way. Now, if you do that, if you see things that way, if you believe in a God who is powerful and big enough to come as a crucified king instead, you are going to anger lots of people who would rather be in the capital W world. Or to be more accurate, because Paul says our fight is not against flesh and blood, people are never the problem, but against the powers and authorities in the high places. What you're actually going to do is anger the world. And that's why Jesus warns them that when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be mocked and spat upon and flogged. It's because he knows that his calling of service, even to give his life as a ransom for many, is too radical and too destabilizing and too power reorganizing for the world to sustain it. Because the world is the place where people stay in their position and they are kept that way. And so Jesus lets them know that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's not going to suffer, but the world is going to try to shame him in his suffering. It's possible to suffer and to be honored for it. That is not the cross. The cross is the suffering of Jesus under the shame of the world. And what makes the church different is they can see that even there, God is the king on a rescue mission for his creation. Now, it's pretty hard to see that. And I think one of the reasons it's hard to see that is because most of our examples go the other way. Do you know what I mean? Like, my godfather once said, Pete, the boss is always an idiot. Might as well be you. Like, we always live, again, in these structures that, that point our eyes upwards to the kind of envy of people above us. Remember when you were in middle school and the high schoolers looked so big and you wanted to be like them, like they were, I don't know, smoking cigarettes behind the photo booth, and you thought like, I know that's bad, but I kind of want to do it now because all the cool kids are smoking behind the school. Like we just are drawn to the examples of someone in front of us, even if they're bad. Which is why I think Jesus walks ahead of them at the beginning of this passage. He leads them into the city where he will have that final moment where he has taken so seriously his mission to serve, it will even cost him his life. I don't know if you ever had that opposite moment where you're in high school and you're hanging out with the older kids and the older kids um, tell you you haven't been nice to somebody. Did you ever have that? Like, like 
I always thought, like, the cool thing about being the older kids is they're cool and they can make fun of the freshmen or whatever. And then I fell in with the right group of seniors when I was a freshman. And there were a couple times where I'd try to, like, make fun of somebody else, basically just to lift myself up. And they would go, like, Petey, come on. Jesus is kind of like that. Like, he's kind of like that person you look up to who's walking a road to a different kingdom that almost none of our other examples offer us, though I think we all secretly know we want to live there. And so um, as we close, and I'll invite the worship team back up, um, as we close, you may know what the Lord is um, saying to you this morning. In, In that case, go with that. But if you have an open mind... Um, City Church, uh, I was informed, I'm like on the org chart of the pastoral staff. I'm like the electron orbiting way over there. So I was informed by the real staff um, that we would like to take more time on Sunday mornings to respond to whatever God is doing. So we're going to enter into a time of response worship that's a little longer than usual. And um, if you would like to come to the front and pray with somebody or ask someone to pray with you or just like do your thing right there, totally welcome. But as we're responding, if I could just offer you two questions to ask the Lord, take them if you'd like. Um, One question I think we could ask God is, how is Jesus serving us? I think we probably spend a lot of time too busy to notice that Jesus is doing all the time what he promised to do, which is to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And my hunch is, in ways that we have missed in our recent past, Jesus has been serving us. And so if we ask him that question, and he brings something to mind and gives us an answer, I think it sets up to ask a second question, which is like, okay then, who are we supposed to serve? How are we going to, in little ways or big ways, move forward this calling in the kingdom for the church to not be like the world, for us to be a community whose first thought is how do we serve somebody else? So if you'd like to stand or you'd like to sit or you'd like to move somewhere or do whatever works for you, but if you want to ask those two questions, how is Jesus serving you and who does Jesus call you to serve?